All right, if you will turn to Ecclesiastes 4, I'm going to start at verse 4. Uh, I wonder how you view work. Um, just as I was greeting people today, um, every conversation I had eventually pretty quickly ended up at work. Uh, busy, lots of work, just working a lot. Um, work is such a central piece of our lives. So I wonder how you view work, how you view your own work, whether that's in the home, outside of the home, the work of your spouse, or if you are not yet working or not currently working, just how you think of work, or schoolwork, if you are in school, how do you view work? I imagine many of us view it as a necessary evil. It is something that we would prefer not to do, but unfortunately we have to, and so we we do it grudgingly, just trying to get through another week and get to the weekend where real life can happen. Or perhaps you try to, you put all of your energy into getting to a point where you don't have to work, whether that be in, be, uh, being financially independent or, or retiring or whatever, trying to get free from work because that is where real and satisfying life can be found. Or perhaps you view work as a source of identity and worth, though you would never confess it like that. If you were honest with yourself, you find a large part of your identity of who you are in your work. And if it was taken from you, you would be rocked to the core. You wouldn't know what to do with yourself. Or perhaps you view work as a way to achieve the good life. It's a, a means to gain wealth, live at a certain level, be viewed in a certain way, go on certain vacations, have certain opportunities and things. It is a means to personal ambition and achievement. Well, all of these are ways that our hearts and in our world, our culture view work. These, we are being trained in many different ways to think about work in these ways. And Ecclesiastes is very relevant to this, um, touches on all of this, and comes with a typically pessimistic message that all of this, all of these views of work are ultimately vanity and a striving after the wind. They leave us frustrated and empty. And this is one of the areas where it, it is clear that the wisdom of God and his word is, is so radically different than the wisdom of the world. Where the view of work that we get in scripture is is not something that you're just going to happen upon in this world, whether from any, from any sort of political left or right or social vision of, of life and work. You don't arrive at what the Bible gives us. And so the two broad sections we're going to cover today help us out with this. Uh, the first, as we finish up chapter four, uh, we'll basically be tearing down, tearing down all of our assumptions and, and vain hopes to find satisfaction and lasting significance in our work, and our ambition, and our achievement. But then we'll go into chapter 5, and chapter 5 will begin to build up and put together and point us in a better direction in how we view work and ambition and achievement. Okay, so we'll start in chapter 4, verse 4, and throughout this section, the author gives us four observations about the vanity of work. Verse 4, then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity 
and a striving after the wind. So here's the big idea. Working to keep up an identity is vanity, and on top of that is selfish. Now, our motivations in work are certainly varied and mixed and many. Some good, some not so good. There are many good reasons that we work, but surely a major one that, that drives us in our toil and work and ambition is comparison with others in f is feeling the need to, to have a certain view of ourselves, to be seen in a certain way. We aren't merely concerned with, with our needs and maybe a few wants, but we also want to appear a certain way, appear to be living at a certain level. Uh, this is why social media companies are so rich, because they can target you exactly based on what, who you are, what you want, what you like, what type of person you want to be, and then give you the thing that you didn't even know existed five minutes ago, and now all of a sudden you have to have. And this can be anything. For, for me, honestly, it's often books. I am sucked into the marketing of books, and I just read a couple paragraphs and see the front cover, and I'm like, I have to have that book. People are talking about this book, and I like those people, so i got to be like those people and be able to talk about this book. So I need to work so I can buy that book and be part of that, keep up this identity. And you know what it is, what those things are for you. But again, like I said, our motivations are usually mixed. And so the point is not don't do anything until your motivations are 100% pure. If that is the case, we won't do much of anything. But rather, this is meant to expose the vanity and the striving after the wind quality in all of this, which, which we know to be true, right? I mean, we, we communicate it to our kids about toys, and we can often see it in other people a lot more clearly than ourselves. But there's always one more thing. There's always one more electronic device that's going to make life so much easier, one more app that's going to be so more so much more exciting, one more tool or home improvement or step up the ladder at work, one more vacation or experience. And there's always one more. And it never satisfies. And, and knowing this up front, like God telling us this up front, actually helps a great deal, right? It keeps us from buying into the lies of the thousands of ads that we're fed every day and keeps us from fighting to be content, and to find contentment elsewhere. The author goes on, second observation. Um, and here in these, these verses, 5 and 6, he, we see that both working hard and hardly working are vanity. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after the wind. Uh, so verse 5 is stating what, it, what would have been and what is in Scripture a, a generally agreed upon belief about idleness or laziness or refusing to work if you were able. Uh, to fold one's hands is to not work, is to sit there and rest. And if you do that on and on and on at great length, you will ruin yourself. Literally, eat your own flesh. It's a, a phrase. And this view of work and, and, and laziness is consistent throughout the Bible. Proverbs 13.4 says, The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, 
while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So work, from God's perspective, is good and is necessary. Um, before the fall into sin, humanity was commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every living thing, which required not just sitting there folding your hands, but actually working diligently. You can think of Jesus, who was perfect, and that did not keep him from working. He, he worked. Now, there are various reasons someone may not be able to, do, to work, even if they are willing, temporarily or indefinitely, and, and we have a call both as families and as the church family to care for those people. But in general, work is good, and we should work diligently. However, as verse 6 makes clear, work is not an end in itself. Achievement and ambition are not ends in themselves. So, so verse 6 here says that it's better to have a handful, one handful, of quietness, that is rest and calm and peace and some satisfaction with less than to have two hands full of toiling, even if you have much material fruit as a result. One commentator says, it is the two-handed toiling for wealth as an end in itself that is a root of all evil. It grows like a strangling vine around the heart, and the harm spreads its tentacles in several different directions at once. Which isn't an argument, which isn't saying don't work hard, or don't even work long hours. Sometimes we have to work hard jobs and long hours. Some of our jobs are taxing physically, some of our jobs are taxing mentally, some of our jobs are taxing emotionally. All of us in our work and whatever we spend our days doing experience frustration and meaninglessness. Whatever you do, whatever you spend most of your time doing, you wrestle with the question of what am I really accomplishing of any lasting value? Like, you go in Monday, whatever your schedule is, but like your weeks just go by and go by and you're like, did I really accomplish anything? And we wonder, perhaps we need to work more. Then we'll be satisfied. We need to work longer or we need to find a new job. That perfect job that will satisfy us is surely out there. Or perhaps we go the other direction and the problem is work. We, we just need to get to a place where we don't have to work. Then we'll be satisfied. But the Bible tells us that work and its fruits are not ends in themselves, and if we treat them as such, they won't satisfy. Also, freedom from work and that lifestyle is not an end in itself either, and if we treat it as such, it won't satisfy. I used the analogy a few weeks ago, Ecclesiastes, which I didn't make up, but Ecclesiastes is just like continually popping all of these balloons 
that we look to to give us satisfaction. And just, we're, they're being deflated. They're being popped one by one. Neither work or freedom from work as ends in themselves give us the key to life. They are tinged through and through with frustration. Author continues with a third observation about work. Verses, a little bit longer section here, verses 7 through 12. He says, again, I saw vanity under the sun, one person who has no other, either son or brother. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. So this section is, is kind of like the Proverbs, right? It's, it's like a proverb. It tells us a general truth about life. And that truth is that companionship in life Going through life with others, whether a spouse, family, friends, church community, is better than being a lone ranger. No matter how successful or wealthy or how much we can amass and accomplish in doing things by ourselves. Now, very few people are going to disagree with that. Most people are going to agree that, yes, we need other people. Companionship is good. But still, it's very tempting to do it alone. Especially when it comes to our ambitions and our dreams and desires. Because if life is about achieving our dreams and desires, about fulfilling our, reaching our full potential, then really it's better to be independent, right? Because then you don't have to wait on other people and you don't have to, share fruit with other people. I mean, people are complicated. You can keep control over your lives. But the flip side is, is you'll be alone. Toiling alone is also a vanity and an unhappy business. Now, one of the things about Ecclesiastes that we've seen is that there are parts that give us these proverbs, like, this is true. It is better to do life with others than alone. But Ecclesiastes also pops those balloons. That that is not the end of the matter. That the answer or key to life in this situation is not simply find people to go through life with, and that's, that's, that's the last word. You'll be good, you won't experience frustration. And so in this final section in chapter 4, we see that that is the case. Things were getting a little bit positive and encouraging, but then this is Ecclesiastes. Verses 13 to 16. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. So he's painting this situation. For he went, this, this youth went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth, 
who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this is also vanity and a striving after the wind. Now if you look closely here, this is essentially taking all of the wind out of the sails of what we just previously looked at. We, we have this like ultimate success story of toil and ambition and achievement. But not only that, this youth is wise and he's got people around him. He's got companionship. This is like the ultimate rags to riches story. This is the makings of many movies and books. This youth advances from poverty uh, and, and imprisonment to being king. He gets all his heart desires and he has great success. There's no end of all the people, all of whom he led. He's got, he's got everything. And yet, from an ultimate perspective, from the perspective of finding what life is about, finding meaning in life, the author says even this is vanity and a striving after the wind because his legacy doesn't last. While he helped people in his time that eventually people forgot about him, he died and the world moves on. To make this personal, say you actually achieve all of your grand ambitions and desires and, and dreams. You get the position you want, or the role you want, you get the salary you want, you get the schedule and freedom you want, you produce the results you want. Even if that is the case, what is the best you can hope for? People's lives were temporarily improved because of you, even though in your heart you know that there was a lot of selfishness in what you were doing. Perhaps you feel secure in your identity for a while, even though probably not as secure as you would let on to. Perhaps you enjoy your success in community with your friends and family, even though all the time you were not really satisfied in it. You're wanting more. But then you're gone, and the world moves on, and they stop rejoicing in you, stop remembering you entirely. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so the author of Ecclesiastes has effectively popped every balloon relating to work and ambition and achievement. Like none, of it, none of it satisfies. None of it fulfills our ultimate God-given cravings and longings. Okay? So what do we do? Well, as we move to chapter 5, it can seem like the topic changes, like we're moving in a different direction, but fundamentally, at underneath it's the same, and we begin to get a better, a picture of a better way forward. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 together, and then we'll want to unpack them, because you kind of see some, um, the same ideas and themes and, and big ideas uh, in all of these verses as a whole. So it says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. 
for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. Do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And that last part really ties us all together. When dreams increase, that is, when our ambitions and our desires and our um, all that we are wanting to do have us frantically running this way and that way, staying busy with activity, hoping to achieve something great, and rarely, if ever, slowing down and to consider God's will or God's presence. When words grow many, that is, when we, we talk a great talk, we make great boasts, we promise God things, promise God devotion, we, we promise others that help and, and love, but our words carry very little weight because we aren't really thinking through them, we aren't even intending to carry through with them. We tend to think that what is needed most in life is activity, is accomplishing something, setting goals, and achieving them. We need to reach the world with the gospel. Good goal. We need to reach our city. We need to build a successful ministry and church. We need to feed the hungry and house the homeless. We need to raise healthy kids and support our families. We need to bring justice to the world. These are all good things. But if this is where we start and if this is the totality of what we're focused on and feeding on, then we're actually striving after the wind. At best, we're trying to do the work of God without God. In our own strength. From our own place of wisdom and strength and whatever else we think we can accomplish. Rather, what is needed most and first and what is the position that we need to start out at and then continually come back to is this attentive fear of God. If we were to sum up those verses, an attentive fear of God. So look at what it says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. So come carefully. And then it ends. God is the one you must fear. So in other words, in all of your life, and not just on church day, come to God with a fear and reverence and sincerity and attentiveness. Come to God as the most weighty and significant thing in your life. As opposed to coming to God as a religious hypocrite offering a sacrifice of fools. And, and what this is, is giving devotion merely in pretense to appease God. Um, as if you can we can pursue our ambitions and dreams and desires over here, kind of appease God over here with a little bit of religious devotion and then get on with our lives. It's called a sacrifice of fools. 
thinking that we can trick God. But God isn't the means to an end. God is the end in himself. Our toil and ambitions can appear very praiseworthy. We can be doing many good things, caring for our family, supporting our family, contributing to the needs of the church and our community and serving others. Keep doing those things, great things. But do them out of a contented and attentive fear of dependence on rest and delight in God. Come back to him again and again. Seek to learn from and be led by him. This passage talks a lot about listening, right? Being quiet, being still and, and listening. Draw near to listen. Be not rash with your mouth. Let your words be few. This isn't just about what we do in church. This isn't just about what we do in our prayer life and our small groups and studies and Bible reading and all of that. This is getting at one's whole relationship or disposition towards God. At work, at home, at school, and your planning and ambitions and dreams. Do you come to God to listen and learn and be led? Do you know what it means to be still and know that He is God? Do you know how to do that? Like to stop the activity and trying to prove yourself with activity first and only and just sitting still before God. Do you know that God is all wise and that we are not? And so it is good for us to submit our ambitions and dreams and desires to Him rather than rashly and arrogantly just acting on our own. Do you know that God is all sovereign and providentially ruling over all things in your life? And, and so the outcome of all of your ambitions isn't really in your hands. In other words, are, are you content with faithfulness no matter what the results are? And then finally, do you know that God is good? Do you know that God is good? And he can be trusted with every aspect of your life, including your dreams and ambitions and desires, which means that drawing near to God and seeking him first is not just right and that we ought to do it. It is that, but it is also good and desirous and satisfying. And this is really what the fear of God in Scripture is about, right? On the one hand, Scripture gives us an image of God as all-powerful, authoritative, the one to whom every knee will bow, he will judge the whole world, and he is worthy. He's worthy of everything. And, and that elicits a kind of fear, a, a fearful fear, if that's all you know about God. And if you are one who is running from God and ignoring God and despising God, then that is meant to waken you up to your senses and bring you back. But that's not the complete picture of God that we get in Scripture, and that's not the total idea of fear in the Scripture either. And so if that's the image of God that you have, keep pressing in, keep reading. 
because this same God is also full of compassion. We are told he's rich in mercy, not meager and begrudging in his mercy, but rich in bestowing mercy. He, he seeks the lost. He's humble and gentle and lowly and finds joy in drawing us to himself. And, and to do that, to draw unworthy sinners like us to himself, the, those who were running from him and ignoring him and despising him, he gave himself to suffer and die. He humbled himself and stood in our place, taking the weight of our guilt, satisfying all the demands of justice because of his compassion and love. And when you see this, it induces a different kind of fear, though it is still fear. It causes you to be joyful and grateful in reverence and draws you, compels you to come near to him and not stay at a distance. Just as when someone you love, a parent, a spouse, a child, a good friend, shows you love that you know that you don't deserve. It causes you to respond with gratefulness and love in response. It changes you. And when we are changed by the love of God and when we are won over by the grace of God and we live in grateful and joyful and humble worship and love for God, only then can we approach our work and our toil and ambition rightly. And I think this is summed up wonderfully by Paul in, in Colossians 3, the passage that I imagine you are familiar with, where he says, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So uh, understand the expansiveness of this. Whatever you do, whatever your days look like, whatever you give yourself to and spend your time doing, whatever career or role or responsibilities you have, whoever you might be serving on the human level, those above you, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So in everything, you have an opportunity to serve the Lord, which means that on the one hand, your work and your toil, whatever it is, can be meaningful and good. It's not just a necessary evil that you have to get through. There is great opportunity in it. But on the other hand, it means that your work is not an end in itself. It's not about your work, no matter how amazing your job is. It's not the source of your identity and worth, and it cannot hold up as such. God and his love and his presence and his promises is the end and goal. Keep coming back to him. Draw near and listen. Draw near to listen and learn and be led and work from that place of knowing who you are in Christ. Knowing that he is worth everything, but he loves you. You are serving the Lord Christ.
Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You are serving the Lord Christ. So all of life has meaning. All of life has opportunity. Let's pray.